Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we are doing episode 190 of the Internet of Things podcast, and we have an awesome show for you. We're going to be talking about NTIA's new federal privacy framework. Lots to discuss there, my gosh. And we've got some botnet news because, you know, it's a day ending in Y. Intel has a brand new neural network on a stick that everyone loved the last time around, so we'll talk about that. Amazon's got their new microwave out there. Plus, we're going to be talking about some challenges with setting up routines and what the heck is happening there. Also, buttons on routines. Woo-woo, bringing a button to your Madam A. Google, we see an Enterprise Glass version. News from Google Home. We've got new services on Ift, a brand new activity tracker, an update on a big funding from last week, and some data about IoT security. Plus, instead of a voicemail where we help you guys, we had one of our listeners help all of us. So yay, be on the lookout for that. Our guest this week is Emily Silverman, who is a project manager at Denver. She is in charge of their smart city efforts. So we talked about things like, oh, I don't know, data privacy, how to make cities smart, and even data management, which sounds really boring, but it's actually really essential and you will want to hear it. We also have a message from our sponsor, Bitdefender, talking about securing routers. And we are now going to be on Pandora, and you will be able to find us there if you sign up for their beta version. We'll have instructions in the show notes for that. And so if you are a big Pandora user and want to listen to us there, around mid-December, you should be able to if you sign up for the beta. Okay, that's all the updates I have for you this week. Let's get on with the show with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Cognizant. With demanding customers at the center of today's value chain, delivering engaging products and experiences is even more important. Cognizant, a global leader in business and IT services, helps companies engage customers by envisioning innovative products and experiences and inventing disruptive new business models. With these insights, Cognizant collaborates with clients to build smart products, disruptive strategies, and new ways of engaging customers across every channel that uses the power of IoT. Learn more about Cognizant's IoT services and solutions at cognizant.com slash IoT. Awesome, you guys. Man, I feel like the last couple episodes, we've spent a lot of time talking about privacy, and it looks like now we're actually getting somewhere in the legislative world. Yay. Yay. So the NTIA, which is the National Telecommunications Infrastructure Agency, it's part of the Department of Commerce. They also handle like rural broadband and some weird stuff that you're like, what? I don't know about the NTIA. You may have to because they have been responsible for coming up with some updated privacy rules. They were published actually in September in the Federal Register. Which, which is very good reading. I curl up with that every night. Man, I, I'm glad we have lawyers that we, <laughs> lawyers and journalists who comb over this stuff. But recently, what happened is everybody had to submit comments. And so we're seeing a lot of comments now from various agencies and organizations talking about these rules. So it's time to dig into what they mean. Basically, the NTIA is trying to figure out the administration's approach to consumer privacy. They've settled on the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, for taking care of enforcement 
for this. So it's not going to be an NTIA thing because they're like, you know what? The FTC already handles things like deceptive advertising and consumer privacy and other areas. So let's give all this to the FTC. So the FTC, by the way, issued a comment saying, yeah, they're good with that. (laughs) So let's dig into what the NTIA thinks we should be doing. First up. So I like the approach that they've taken here because they've got two sections where they've highlighted about seven privacy outcomes. So we know what to expect or what these ideas will hopefully push for consumer privacy. And then eight high-level goals for federal action. So we've got, it's a very outcome-based situation here that they're outlining. So what do you want to do? Go through the privacy outcomes first? Sure. But first I want to say the outcome-based approach is really important because we're dealing with an area that is so quickly changing that we can't have something too prescriptive because it's going to become outdated way too quickly. So I think that's really important to note. So starting now- Which is why these will be very, I'll say, high-level generic, so they can be modified under certain sections in the future as things change, I would think. Yeah, and that you have discretion. So the agency responsible for enforcement, and this is both a good thing and a bad thing. It depends on who's in charge of the agency, but having that discretion does, ideally, it will lead to better laws, basically, that are a little bit more flexible and something that is ongoing and evolving. So outcomes, let's talk about them. First up, transparency. You should be able to understand how people collect and share your data. What's really noteworthy here is they specifically call out the idea of lengthy notices describing a company's privacy program at a consumer's initial point of interaction with the product does not lead to adequate understanding. That is basically a stab at you, It is. It is. And we've talked about this before. I would like to know that before even buy the product. Now, they don't get into how to actually make this happen, but I like where they're going. And last week when we talked, I think it was last week, when we had the person talking about the digital standard on the show, she actually suggested that when you put something in your Amazon cart, you see a basic privacy and kind of data sharing framework or notice, which I actually thought was really interesting. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So, hey, Amazon, if you're listening, think about that. Okay, next up, control. You should be able to exercise reasonable control over the collection, use, storage, and disclosure of your personal information that you provide. This is interesting. It reminds me of when you install an app on your phone where permissions are asked. You know, do you want to grant this app permission to see your contacts, collect this type of data, use your GPS, et cetera? I don't think sometimes we just say yes blindly to all of those permission requests, but maybe you're not going to use a particular function. Maybe you're not going to use location-based functions of a device. The whole device should still work except for that function. And a lot of times you can't even use a device or an app unless you agree to all of them. So when they say control, I kind of read into it that way. And maybe I'm reading into it too much, but that's what I'd like to see. And that's something that people have talked about. It doesn't really get into that. Now, it does say that you should be able to rescind your permissions as well, which is nice. So moving on, uh, reasonable minimization. Data collection should be minimized and it needs to be weighed against the risk of privacy harm. So it also talks, and this is tied into the next one, which is security. The company collecting this data needs to have security in place. So if you're going to collect this data, you as a user should expect that the company is keeping it secure and that the company's gathering it should take measures appropriate to the level of risk associated if you lose it, which means if you're like an Experian or something, saying that, you know, oh, well, we had a password 
on our servers that has all of your sensitive credit card, medical, and financial information, that's not going to be enough, especially at the password's password, right? They want to see a lot more. Also in the security section, they discuss securing personal data at all stages, not just at collection, computation, storage, but even the transfer of raw and processed data, which is a must in my opinion. Yes, that feels like a bare minimum, but I'm glad to see it spelled out because that actually makes it a bare minimum. (laughs) (laughs) Access and correction is users should have access to the data that you've collected on them and they should be able to have a process to change it which is really important as we start talking about things like, oh, I don't know, your health insurance information being collected from your Fitbit. Maybe you lost it for a day and it's not accurate anymore. You should be able to have a process by which to say that, right? Kind of like an edit button yeah, for your data. I agree. I just, and this is an edge case. I worry about people who may do nefarious things and then go back and scrub maybe sound captured by a smart device when they did that nefarious thing later, you know? I'm okay with that, actually. I'm like, you know, Uh, yeah, because even scrubbing the data leaves a record. So in the case, like if I murdered someone and then went back and erased those sound files from my echo, there's still circumstantial evidence on that. Oh, hey, what were they doing? They scrubbed their echo data during this time. Mm -hmm. Suspicious. All right. I'm not murdering anyone with my echo. Yeah, I wasn't going there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh. Risk management. This is kind of tied with the security stuff, but basically hey, try not to expose people's personal data. And basically, and I'll say this because this is how they're pitching this rule. Risk management is the core of this administration's approach as it provides the flexibility to encourage innovation in business models and privacy tools while focusing on potential consumer harm and maximizing privacy outcomes. It's also a really hard thing to legislate and argue in courts, but yeah, Yeah. accountability. Organizations should be accountable both internally and externally for collecting and using personal information. That seems... Oh, also, if you collect data, you need to make sure that your third-party companies that have access to it, vendors, service providers, they are also accountable for the use and storage of this data. That's really interesting. That one, yeah, because, and we've said this many times in the show, once the data is, you know, gone, it's out in the wild, maybe to a third party, for example, the original company that collected the data doesn't really have any control until after the fact. Like if a third party company uses that private data wrongly, sure, you can shut them down and shut down access, but they still have all that old data. This is a really tricky situation. It is, although I think it does encourage people to be a little bit more circumspect about who they're shared data with in the first place, right? Yep. This is basically yep. ascribing, hopefully, penalties to the improper use of personal data, which right now there aren't really any. It's unclear exactly what these penalties would be. The FTC has the power to fine people. It has the power to censure them. It doesn't have a lot else. It can't send people to jail, I don't think. So those were the privacy outcomes. Let's talk about high-level goals. So these are, again, just big picture. They want They want to harmonize the regulatory landscape. That makes sense. Not a lot of laws. They want legal clarity while maintaining the flexibility to innovate. We talked about that. Comprehensive application. Any action addressing consumer privacy should apply to all private sector organizations. That is nice because right now the only legislation that we have at a federal level, it was an attempt at legislation that applied only to government contractors and it was more about security. And that was kind of like, eh, no. Everyone must play. Employ a risk and outcome-based approach. Again, talked about that. That could come back and bite us, I'll be honest, as consumers. It may not be the most consumer-friendly thing. 
that'll be an area you'll want to watch when this all happens. Interoperability. Kevin was very excited about interoperability. So when I first read this, I kind of thought interoperability in terms of like platforms talking to each other and so on, but it's not so much that. It's just a step back saying we realize that to advance, you know, smart devices and all these new services that are coming out based on personal data, you know, they are based on personal data. So we don't want to cut down and make it difficult for companies to make products and services, but we still have to make sure that personal data is protected. So it's kind of, they're saying we should seek to reduce friction placed on data flows by developing a landscape, a regulatory landscape consistent with international norms and frameworks around the world that the United States participates in and so on. So I think this is kind of like just a high level thing saying, you know, we got to be careful to balance the privacy risks versus stifling innovation. We don't want to do that. Right. And it would stifle innovation if there was like, our rules were really different from like GDPR or what's happening in Asia. Yes. They also call for incentivizing privacy research. Yay, money for privacy research. FTC enforcement, we talked about that. And scalability. The administration should ensure that the proverbial sticks used to incentivize strong consumer privacy outcomes are deployed in proportion to the scale and scope of the information an organization is handling. So small businesses that don't have a lot of information, they probably shouldn't be the big targets. So basically, Facebook, Google, Experian, all of you big co's, you've got a target on your back if you don't behave. So, so far, feedback has been mostly like, hey, the FTC is good for this. The privacy watchdog folks are good with a lot of things in aggregate. They question the small print and you know, the flexibility accrued to this. So those are where you're going to see the fights. And then the, you know, libertarian anti-privacy people are like, this goes too far, as is usual. So we'll keep an eye on that. The FTC is in December and February holding their own hearings on privacy. So we're going to be hearing a lot more. Oh, that was a lot about privacy. At least you guys didn't have to read through it. (laughs) Yeah, at least you skimmed skimmed the federal register for you. That is a service, man. All right. That's why we own the big bucks. Okay. Let's talk about botnets because this is why, you know, privacy matters. We need that framework. Yeah. Yeah, This kind of cropped up out of nowhere, but it's, I don't want to say it's an old story, but it's an old botnet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. So back in January 2013, there was an advisory. So back in 2013, there was an advisory released explaining a critical flaw in affected routers from big names, Broadcom, Asus, Cisco, TP-Link, D-Link, Netgear, US Robotics. Well, there's an old name for you. And it turns out that last week, that issue was looked into again at NetLab 360. There are researchers that look into these exploits and such. It's still around. And apparently it has taken control of about 100,000 different home and small office routers from that range of manufacturers. I don't know why it was never fixed. I guess didn't seem an issue at the time. I don't know. It all revolves around universal plug and play. And yes, but here's the thing. Most people in the know don't use UPnP or universal plug and play. They disable it whenever possible. The problem is there are still some modern services and devices that require UPnP. I think I'm almost positive that the Chromecast still does. I think the Chromecast still requires UPnP. Exactly. And the problem is with UPnP, you're pretty much opening up your network to always be scanning for other UPnP type devices. So it just so it just works. Well, that's great from a user experience standpoint, but it's terrible from a security standpoint. Yes. In fact, if you search for Chromecast and UPnP, you get all these things saying, please help me use my Chromecast with UPnP disabled. (laughs) And unfortunately, Google says, yeah, no, 
Yeah, no. If you do have UPnP enabled and you have one of the 116 models of routers, and I believe that NetLab 360 has a list of them, you should check to see if there's a router update or a patch available. Or buy a new router. Not, you should not be using your router from 2013. I would agree with you on that. I know routers can get expensive and all that, but yeah, I would agree. All right. That was our good news, bad news segment. Let's talk about neural <laughs> networks on a stick. Intel has a new one. It's based on the Movidius chip company that it bought several, was it several years, two years ago now? That's a while back. They launched one of these a year ago and it was a huge hit. People loved it. It basically gives you AI computing capabilities for edge devices. So people popped them on drones and other things just to start like creating these new models. And this version is a hundred bucks. It's a bit more powerful and, you know, same functionality. I expect this to sell very well among the maker community and from developers who are trying to figure out, you know, how to bring AI to the edge. So check that out. Yeah, it's just a little USB stick that you plug into your computer. However, you need to be running Linux to use it, apparently, which that makes sense to me. But I don't think, you know, everyday consumers are going to rush out and say, I want to make my drone smart. Let me go get one. This is going to be for people who are kind of tinkering and making devices, which many of which are built on, you know, some piece of Linux. Yes, this is definitely, I would say, professional developers are maybe prosumers. So nerds of the world. All right, Amazon. Oh, so much Amazon stuff. So let's get into it. They have their voice-controlled microwave now available, 60 bucks. You just say Madame A, which is what we call Amazon's digital assistant. Madame A, cook me a baked potato in poof. It happens. This is not to make your life easier because like everyone talks about this microwave and they're like, okay, I still have to get up and put the thing in the microwave. And I'm like, that is not the help that this is providing, the voice control in this is providing all the thinking behind the scenes for setting the time to roast a baked potato in the microwave or to make popcorn. It's almost like, and I know we've talked about this prior because we both have one, it's almost like the smarts of a June oven shrunken down into a microwave and with a voice control to access those smarts as opposed to with the June, we have a keypad and so on, although we can use Madame A to preheat the oven. Yes. And also available is the Fire TV Recast, which is the antenna. It's kind of like a personal arrow. I don't know if you guys remember that company, Aereo. It allows you to get digital TV signals and record it, which is- Over the air. Over the air. Sorry. Right. DTV. Over the air. Over the air DTV. I'm excited about that actually, because I can't get over the air television on my TV. So I have to either buy it from someplace or maybe this device will finally work. Who knows? Finally help me. I've had so many antennas, just nothing. And also you can add devices to a room using your voice and the microwave, the recast, and this voice adding devices via voice capability. All of this was announced in September with the Amazon's gigantic, (laughs) very difficult to cover, very cool event. event. So devices which use the ACK board, which is the Madam A Connect Kit, they will actually, you can plug those devices in or just basically give those devices power. They're going to fire up and they're going to be able to locate themselves on your Wi-Fi network if Amazon has your Wi-Fi credentials. They will connect and then your Madam A device is going to say, hey, I see a smart plug. What would you like to call this? And you can be like, I'd like to call it kitchen. And then it'll be like, would you like to put it in a room? And then you'd say, yes, please put it in the kitchen. And all of that is done via voice, which is awesome. Yeah, it's all making the setup experience easier. The plug and play, in a sense, having it self-discover and then adding the room by voice. I mean, it does not get any easier than that. No app needed. And that's why 
when all this came out in September, and I can link back to it if you want, but I talked about this being like Apple-like in its simplicity. And I think this is a big, huge step for Amazon in identifying the problems of the smart home and solving it. And again, this is going to be the big trend for next year, which is the normalization and mainstreaming of the smart home. This is key. So moving on, Amazon also announced, and this is actually a new announcement, not just an actual happening of an old announcement, that routines will now work with the Echo buttons. So if you have one of those Echo buttons that came out, I think last year, and basically Amazon was like, you can use them to play games and nobody bought them. No. Yeah. But now you basically have a button that will launch a routine. And you could actually do this using Ift or other things, but now you can do it a little bit more easily with Amazon and you take one of these buttons and when you press it, it will do like movie time or whatever. I did not buy one of the buttons, but now I sort of wish I did because there are times when I want to fire off a routine and don't want to go into an app and or don't want to speak aloud because maybe everybody's sleeping or something. So just having a button right next to me, boom, make something happen. Yeah. And also, how awesome would it be to have a party time button? that you just have in your house and you're just like, guys, I just got a promotion. What? What? Party time. Party time. Well, bam. I think that would be like awesome if you have small kids and they come home with like a great grade on their paper. I mean, guys, and someone actually seriously mentioned that this would be kind of neat for the disabled or people who have service dogs because dogs could press the buttons, which I was like, whoa. Okay. But now we have to have a little bit of real talk about Amazon routines. Oh, here it comes. It is not good. I can't control anything with Amazon routines. There are no devices. (laughs) Right. Just before the show, um, Stacey had me double check my Madam A app and go into routines. And there's a tab in there for devices. Mine couldn't find any devices that would work with a routine. And then you only found one. So, I mean, the whole point of, I thought, like, this aspect would be semi-automation, but there's nothing there. Yeah. And I have a lot, like I wanted to, cause we had had a question last week about, you know, cameras and bringing in, you know, motion detection, having Madam A announce that or something like that happen. Right. And everyone's like, check out routines. So I did. And I, it fell short. It fell short. <laughs> like I have three different cameras on there. I have the wise cam. I have the August doorbell cam and I have, oh gosh, Arlo's all tied in there and none of them are supported. And the Nest cams won't be supported because Nest doesn't share their camera APIs. So I'm like, I guess Ring maybe is supported and I just don't happen to have a Ring cam right now. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not understanding it either. It's it's very, very odd to have that devices tab under routines and then nothing showing up when things do work with Madame. Yes. So just keeping that up there, you know, we'll keep back on that. Let's talk about Google. Google Glass Enterprise V2, Kevin, what has happened there? Well, last year, there were some leaks, rumors, etc. of Google creating a new Google Glass for the enterprise, and we never really heard much of anything since. However, this week, the second-gen Google Glass Enterprise Edition got through the FCC certifications, so it's a real product because they tested it, and can't really say what the specs are. I mean, we have some leaked specs from last year that still include a camera, have an Intel Atom chip, and apparently 32 gig of storage, which I'm not sure why you would want that. So, But specs aside, there is, I think, a market for Google Glass in the enterprise. It's um, totally a market. I see it all the time. Heads-up displays are huge when I go to these industrial conferences. So yes. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder, you could kind of do some of the same things from a contextual notification standpoint, like maybe you need to get an alert that production line four is down or there's a it's, an issue, something is heating up. Maybe a smartwatch would do it, but I kind of like the fact that you could just have it pop up in front of your eye. And it's less about that and it's more about fixing or repairing. So these people aren't wearing them all the time on the factory line. It's more like you put them on or an engineer puts them on to go diagnose or deal with a piece of equipment. So mm, that, and that makes sense. That, I mean, that's how I don't, used today. Sure, sure. I suspect that AR goggles and glasses will take the place of that because the Google Glass screen is low res and small. So looking up product information and oh, you know instructions what? on how to right. fix something. Those are all AR glasses. Just ignore ah. me. Just ignore Okay. Me. All right. Google Glass heads up display for ambient information. <laughs> sure. Yes. All right. Let's move on to the Google Home 2.7. Hmm. Now, I have not received the version of Google Home 2.7 on my phone, but the folks at 9to5Google took the Android version and kind of peeked inside. They do this often. And they see, among all the different improvements that are coming, they see a lot of Google Wi-Fi settings being listed in here. Not used yet, but basically a bunch of strings that are suggesting that you'll be configuring or changing your Google Wi-Fi stuff in the Google Home app. And I have mixed emotions about that. I wrote a post earlier this week about it saying, is it time for Google Home and Google Wi-Fi to merge? So from a software perspective, it almost sounds like that's happening. And I'm not a fan of it because didn't Google just make the Google Home app much more simple with the last release? <laughs> yes. And it was nice. So why? It is nice. In fact, I finally, after two weeks, two weeks after you, I got it on my Lenovo smart display that pulled down so you can see all of your Google Home devices and all. It's wonderful. But I don't want my Wi-Fi crap cluttering up all that. The flip side is from a hardware perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not saying that that's what Google's doing, but this got me thinking about it. Uh, I'd like to see a, call it a higher end Google Home product that includes Wi-Fi mesh capabilities. It just I want less boxes and things in my house. I always have. And maybe I'm in the minority there, but it just makes sense to combine the two, in my opinion. Agree. I would like to see Google simplify. I would have liked to see Wi-Fi and home all be one place, but you know, that may never happen. But let's move on to some quick news bits. Ready? Here we go. Ift. New services. Bunch of them. One of them I care deeply about. Somfy. The rest, I'm kind of like, a lot of them are actually international. So we've got Link Smart Home. We've got Mitsubishi Electric Kumo Cloud, lets you do home environment and air conditioning. AirTouch, other thermostat stuff. There's the Roost Leak Detector, which I don't know if you guys remember Roost. They do smart smoke detector batteries. They also have the leak detector. Uh, the Logitech Circle Cam is now in there. We have a Dutch grocer that I'm not even going to try to use. And we also have a German grocer that is now involved in South Asia, Asia and Oceania. They have Japan's number one business chat, chat work. And ah, there's the Sumfi control connection. <laughs> so I don't get my Sumfi control just yet. Bummer. And then soon in India, they've added base, which is a fun way to manage your money. I don't know if it's like a Venmo for India, but. Either way, it's all good. So all of these services now on IFT, looking good for them. Also, in the exciting little news bits, Wythings, the, I don't know what to call them, health, fitness, wellness, health and wellness, smart devices. All of the above. All of the above. They have a new tracker, the Pulse HR, which looks remarkably a lot like a Fitbit. 
It's $130. I actually am kind of a little tempted by it. I'll be honest. I had the pulse way back in like 2014 or something. And I thought it did a really good job. It tracked heart rate, steps, other stuff. It integrates with the majors like Apple Health. You can pull it into MyFitnessPal and some other services out there. I kind of would hate to give up all my Fitbit data, but I might. Yeah. Well, you also get sleep monitoring and up to 20 days on a single charge, which is amazing. Yeah, that was the really exciting bit. Thank you, Kevin, for pointing that out. All right. Last week, we talked about View, which was a smart Windows company that raised $1.1 billion. Now, this week, we know why they raised so much money. I talked to them, and they are basically going to try to, because all of their Windows have a microcontroller and a network, they've decided that they will be the platform from which to smartify your office building. You may recall that there are lighting companies out there that want to do that. There are parking sensor companies that want to be the platform to smartify your office building. So it's, sure, go for it, View. Smart windows, sure, their argument is they come in very early in the build process, so you can tie into their system very quickly and easily during the design phase before all these other companies even get a chance to bid for the business. Maybe? So the first product as part of this is going to be a security thing that detects window breaks. So instead of using glass break detection, which is an auditory sensor kind of thing, They are actually, if you break one of their windows, it interrupts their electric current that changes the ions in the glass to make it darker or lighter. And they know automatically because, you know, it basically breaks their window. So that's the first service. Hopefully a bird flying into the window does not do that. You know, those windows are very strong. Yeah. Although I I feel bad for the birds, though. It is not good for birds. Okay. That's on a grim note there. Let's talk about enterprise IoT security. There's data out there from a company called DigiCert that hired a group out of Dallas to survey 700 organizations in five countries. Those companies had to have done some IoT adoption. One of the big challenges in any IoT adoption is people are worried about security. And this survey found that there's definitely an upper tier and a lower tier. In the upper tier, they're focused on IoT security and making sure devices they bring in are secure, that they follow best practices, that sort of thing. In those companies, only a third of them had any sort of security breach during the time frame of the survey. In the bottom half, the companies that aren't doing anything, they, all of them, had some sort of security data breach. <laughs> so, you know, that makes sense. They also said that those in the bottom tier that all had an incident, they were more than six times as likely to have experienced an IoT based denial of service attack, more than six times as likely to experience unauthorized access to IoT devices, and 4.5 times as likely to have experienced IoT-based malware or ransomware attacks. Those that had those issues, they found that those issues cost at least $34 million in the last two years. And that's just of the surveyed companies. Yes. That is yeah. ridiculous. Don't be a bottom-tier company. Be a top-tier company. And most of that is in monetary damages, but some of that is like reputational damage and stock price losses. So some of that is tangible, some of that is intangible. And can I just say I was extremely scared when I read the very first line of this survey? It's four words. Machines are taking over. It did start out very dramatic. (laughs) Yeah, just a bit. And they're going to cost you money and be insecure. Ah, okay. So we'll link to that survey so you can panic on your own time. And now we will move to... What I'm going to say is like one of my favorite things so far 
I've ever had in the IoT podcast hotline, which is somebody telling us what we should do, which I'm sure all of you guys are now like, oh, well, I didn't know we could do that. We'll totally give you tips. But this is a good one from Les. So this is for everyone out there who is looking for an outdoor camera and trying to figure out how to connect it. It actually, if it has a USB cord, this might apply to a lot of people looking for outdoor stuff. So take it away, Les. Hi, this is Les. I've got a reverse question. You've had people call in asking about how to set up security cameras outside and the dilemma is having to power them. Some have built-in batteries and some charged via USB devices. I've actually put a webcam outside and used a battery pack that you use to charge your phones to be able to remotely charge my device. And then when the battery runs low, I just bring the battery pack in and recharge that, which saves me having to take down the security camera. Just hope this tip helps. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. That was awesome, Les. Thank you. And Kevin and I, in looking at this, we went and looked for ruggedized battery packs. Kevin has some, look for an IP66, 65 rating on those. And Kevin has some tips on how big that battery should be. Yeah. I mean, granted, these are typically used for phones and they'll charge a phone, you know, a 10,000 milliamp one might charge a phone six, seven times. I think that's the minimum you want to go with for something like this. Granted, The most juice from that battery pack is going to be used when the wireless camera is streaming. So if you don't have continuous streaming, it won't be using power, much power all the time for just motion detection and such. It won't be so bad, but you're probably only going to get, I don't know, I'm thinking a couple days. You might be able to stretch it out to a week with one of these battery packs. If you go for something with maybe 20, 25,000 milliamps, that might be a stretch, but you'll have to swap them out pretty quick. But it's an option. It is. And it's one I hadn't thought of. So I was kind of excited. And when you get the bigger bricks, you're going to pay a much larger price. So 10,000 milliamps for a highly ruggedized battery, it looks like you could get it for like below 20 bucks. If you move up to like 20,000 milliamps, then you're looking at like 60 bucks. So just keep that in mind, you know, but hey, I still like it. So better than running an electrical line outside. Exactly. That's cheaper than an electrician. So This week, the IoT Podcast listener hotline was brought to you by Schlage. With a variety of stylish electronic locks to choose from, smarter homes start with Schlage. And you can learn more at schlage.com slash IoT. And if you want to be entered to win a Schlage smart lock, which you should because these are actually really good smart locks, you can call us at 512-623-7424 and leave us a message. We will be pulling our winner the 30th of November for this month. So get those calls in before then. And thank you, Schlag. All righty. That brings us to the end of the news segment. Please stay tuned for a conversation about smart cities with Emily Silverman, who is a project manager in Denver, and a message from this week's sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Bitdefender, and I have Alex Balan, who is a chief security researcher at Bitdefender, here to talk to us. All right, we've talked about cyberbullying. We've talked about securing our router. And now let's talk about smart devices and security regulations. Smart devices are fun, small, new, and no one really wants to think about all the dangers associated with them. The manufacturers, not the buyers, nor the users. But there are a lot of third-party entities that have started to regulate the Internet of Things. Do we really need this? Well, yes. Some basic standards need to be imposed to make sure that the Internet is actually still usable by the rest of us. 
Think about it like this. Because of devices having very bad passwords, like admin-admin, the internet was effectively crippled in August 2016. 450,000 devices were hacked by simply accessing them with passwords. And that was almost entirely the manufacturer's fault. There are some basic, very basic security practices that can be applied. We strongly believe that the FTC initiative is a very, very good one because that's going to make manufacturers have some basic security standards that will prevent at least most of the hackers. Are IoT manufacturers doing enough to make their products secure and protect the privacy of their clients? You know, some of them actually are. And it's a good sign to see that. We have an agent in the market that monitors vulnerabilities in smart devices. And we also have a few teams that do vulnerability research on smart devices. And we see some very positive trends from some of the vendors. Unfortunately, that only accounts for less than 5 or 6% of what we've seen in terms of manufacturers. Why do smart devices need security? Well, because they most of them don't have any kind of security embedded into them. I mean, they have some form of encryption and they have some form of authentication, but they don't have mechanisms to defend against brute force attacks. They don't have mechanisms to defend against exploit attempts or other sophisticated attacks that hackers may try. And at this point in time, hackers will hack smart devices because they have fewer defenses than traditional devices. So it's much more of an appealing target for hackers to try to hack these undefended devices. And can a security device or a service protect all the smart devices in my house? Well, if it's a good one. I have it to say that, you know, when we launched the Defender Box V1 quite some time ago, we were the first company to put such a product to provide security for IoT in the market. Now with V2, we're currently providing about seven layers of protection, both at the network level and at the endpoint level. So we have deep packet inspection, brute force protection. We even have a machine learning engine that does anomaly detection and many, many, many other. And where can our listeners go to find out more about Bitdefender? Simply to bitdefender.com slash box. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Emily Silverman, who is the Denver Smart City Program Manager. Hello, Emily. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I am super excited to talk to you. Let's just get started with talk to us about what you're doing related to making Denver into a smarter city. So we like to think that in order for Denver to be a smart city, We have to empower not only city workers, but residents, businesses, and even those who come to Denver to get the best information to make this a safe, healthy place for all. How do you define, I mean, that sounded almost like a definition of the smart city, but how do you know when a city is really smart? What is that going to look like? Take me through it. So what we're doing is we are really aggressively embracing, and I'm going to emphasize that aggressively because we see this as a real paradigm shift, and we want to do it in a thoughtful manner. So we're testing new and better ways to deploy technology. This idea of creating two-way communication between smart devices and using data to improve services for residents, businesses, and also visitors. When I think of what it really boils down to, It's the idea of using data to make our city better. And what does that mean? Cities already have really intelligent people who are doing great things on a daily basis. How do we add value 
to those efforts, such as specifics around air quality, congestion, and then as people are driving through intersections. And what does that do? That helps us get people to where they need to be faster. It helps us really understand the health of our kids and making sure that we get them to school and where they need to be to be on those ladders of opportunity so that they can really achieve everything that they want. Oof, those are big and pretty awesome goals. So it's very easy to say, hey, this is what we're after. It's a lot harder to actually implement something that can make even some of those things happen. Let's break down how Denver is doing this. You and your team, how are you attacking this problem? Yeah, so we were really galvanized by three main things. And then I really want to just talk with you about what our strategy is from a higher level, and then we can dive into details. So the three items that really got us energized around smart cities and the value that it can bring to the people that we serve were among Mayor Hancock's efforts around Peak Academy, which is this really innovative program using Lean Six Sigma process improvement, but seeing that Every person who works at the city is an expert in something. And how do they get empowered to make the best decisions, improve processes, to deliver the services in a manner that really helps the residents who need it most? An example that Mayor Hancock uses is really looking at efficiency, for example, with food stamps or the Department of Motor Vehicles to reduce wait times and the chance between when somebody comes in and needs a sturdy service and that service is delivered. The second catalyst is that we were a finalist for the U.S. Department of Transportation Smart Cities Challenge. We were only one of seven finalists, but we saw the value of working together because it was cross-functional teams among departments that really put together that application. And then the third thing were great strategic partnerships that we have not only with our existing partners within the technology space, but also with partners such as Panasonic, who moved their North American headquarters to a transit-oriented development within the city and county of Denver. We also took a look at what Smart Cities is, because as you mentioned, it means so many things to different people. For us, we really wanted to understand that this is an emerging industry. One thing I think about is that we want to work with people who know how to work on complex projects, but who don't necessarily call themselves experts in the smart city space because we're all learning it together. And so what we did is we did a very tactical strategy where we took existing funding that worked on some efforts from three major departments, including the mayor's office and then technology services, the Department of Public Health and Environment and Public Works. And then we tried to work together to develop some additional funding mechanisms. And we wanted to really test some of the technology and look at what it was to then be able to think strategically. And so how did we do this? Well, we started looking at a living labs concept. So what we did is we wanted to focus in on specific geographic areas and then really start from use cases and test the technology in the field in a safe and secure manner in order to really understand what works. And then the last thing that we did over all of this was build a really strong internal governance so that people at every level both were empowered to do work following after Mayor Hancock's lead with Peak Academy while still getting direction to make sure that we're all part of what really makes the city and county of Denver both work and continue to improve. Okay, so what is your job in all of this as the program manager? So I think we are almost as if we're a startup within the city and county of Denver. We really have this entrepreneurial lens. And so I think I wear lots of different hats, making sure that everybody has what they need able to remove barriers from specific projects 
and then doing the organizational ties to make sure that we're all working towards both the same goals and utilizing our best assets in the ICT, the information and communication technology space, so that we're really growing together. Okay, so since you guys have created this system, I'm really curious how, if I were in your Department of Public Health, for example, how I might go and talk to you guys about creating an air quality monitoring system. We actually went through this about a year ago. So the partnership started about 18 months ago. So how we organized our program was among four different portfolios. And we purposely have names that really are about delivering value rather than kind of the typical program and departmental names. So one of the portfolios is healthy people and places. And that portfolio manager was in the Department of Public Health and Environment, but his focus really was in electrification. He had a colleague who was interested and is an air quality expert and had a great idea. This happened to coincide with the Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge that happened last year that was the first round. And so he brought this gentleman who had a great idea to the implementation team. And our implementation team is kind of that mid-level group of representatives from the different departments. So the gentleman, his name is Michael Ogletree, started talking about this idea he had about real-time hyperlocal air quality data and getting that information into the hands of parents and teachers and nurses. So the team really looked at the effort versus impact, what our current projects were, and could we add value to even his idea where he was. And so we were able to push that forward to our executives and our executive steering committee, and they were really interested. So we all worked at together under the umbrella of a challenge for the Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge and submitted that application and were one of 35 cities who were awarded that proposal. And so to give you a little bit more specifics, what we did is we helped support some of the work he was doing as part of a team, but he really focused on doing user-centered design. So working with the principals and the teachers and the students to say what type of information would help you understand what air quality even is and understanding that as it relates to, for example, stop idling campaigns. An example is I have a friend whose child goes to a school downtown where we do have some congestion and she would like additional information to understand what days are good or bad for her son to participate in recess. And in addition, we know that air quality isn't just a local problem. It doesn't stop at a border. So we need to really work on how we do this regionally to really move the needle in a positive direction. Okay, we're going to move on to regional stuff in a moment. But first, can you give me a sense of the like procurement process? Is it just like he had an idea and then he started talking to you guys and then you all supported him throughout getting data? Did you like how do you choose vendors and something like this? What does that look like? I don't think that there's a one size fits all. We do have a vendor and partner also process form. I do really think that there's a lot of value in creating good processes. That way, it doesn't just rely on me or somebody else, but we start creating a system. And I really do think what we're creating in so many ways are these system of systems, where it's not people and spreadsheets who are talking and communicating in kind of their own forms of silos, but working together. So if someone is interested in partnering with us, for example, they go to our website, they fill out a form. And then we go through a very specific internal process to understand, do we have any active funding that we can use? Can we look at maybe future funding and try to partner with them? For this specific example around air quality, our air quality expert did some initial analysis. The things that we really wanted to understand were really focused around our four main focuses. And I know I've mentioned these before, 
But we wanted to make sure, and when Michael Ogletree was starting to talk with vendors, you know, do we understand local control of data? Can we base everything or most things on open source and open software? Can we look at federal and industry standards to be standards-based? And then also, are we looking at interoperability? And when we looked at that, and again, this was, you know, about a year ago, we started realizing that we wanted to partner with a startup. So we partnered with a local startup called Lunar Outpost to co-develop a sensor that would really have this open data and follow what we wanted to do in order to create this ecosystem. That's awesome. Do you get a lot of pushback from vendors on your things like open standards or data sharing policies? You know, I think that there has been some really interesting transformation even in the last year. For example, I know somebody was looking at a firm even a couple of years ago related to air quality sensors, and it's more of a nationally known firm. And originally, they've really wanted to hold on to the data. But I think that the industry, talking about how it's an emerging industry, it's changing so rapidly. And I think people are understanding that interoperability and data sharing, maybe that there's other ways to monetize the insights that are gained or the value that is gained or being that expert to help analyze the data. But holding on to the data, I don't think we're the only ones in realizing that that doesn't create a good system. That is my sense from where the industry is. I think that they're maybe all over the board, but people are understanding the value of sharing data and then understanding that there's still other ways to create revenue streams because businesses still need to operate. We can't think that we're all here just doing work together for the betterment of people. That's very important. But part of our own economic vitality is having good businesses here in Denver and in Colorado. Got it. Okay. Well, that actually segues nicely into a pretty big conversation that's happening right now in the smart city space. How do you guys think about user data and privacy? Because do we really want all of this information gathered up and possibly used? Yeah, it's really important, I think, to consider it and not as an afterthought, but as a very base and foundation in how we're building things. So when we are looking about how we're going to manage data privacy and security issues, we think a key component is maintaining ownership of our data to be able to address those privacy and security issues upfront and directly with our city partners and our vendors. What we try to do is de-identify the data. So we ensure that we work with our protocol from national organizations, such as to make sure that we're compliant with CGIS, HIPAA, and other standards that are already out there. We're very careful with data encryption, making sure that if you need, for example, if you are trying to understand traffic patterns, there's unique identifiers that are given that have nothing to do with anything that could be traced back to color of a car, the type of car, right? Definitely no data related to the person in the car. And that's really important because from the very start, there's no way to correlate that specifically with a car. And then the last thing I just wanted to say is that we're really interested in understanding and creating the business rules to leave any type of possible PPI data at the edge so that we're bringing in maybe either something that has a huge deviation from the standard, but we do that with aggregated or insights that come from the information rather than any of that data that could have PPI information. And there's a lot of debate happening about like, hey, data that doesn't feel like it might be personally identifiable could become identifiable if you, you know, monitor my car and you can see oh, hey, this car always comes from this direction. And holy cow, we can establish a route back to someone's house. That is kind of crazy and out there, but it is still something that I think people worry about. And I'm glad to see that you guys try to de-identify the data and are thinking about keeping control of it 
or those kind of future cases. So yay on y'all. Just to kind of follow through on the vehicle one. So let's say I am going three blocks in the same direction every day on Monday. And I'm just using this as an example, right? My vehicle is 32156 right? And maybe it's going through, again, we're doing some experiments around connected vehicle technology. But in that one day within a five minute time, it's 32516. The next morning, I'm going in the same direction. Possibly that vehicle is 7321. And then the next time that it goes through an intersection within a very short period of time, it's 7321. So in that sense, day to day, we need to all be responsible for the fact that we can't create the same information from the same users in the same way but creating a pattern that really is aggregated at a higher level to understand patterns rather than individuals. Oh, that's actually a really great example. Thank you for that. And I promise we'd get back to regionalism. And I'd love to do that with transportation, because that's a really good example of how people actually live. I may have an experience in Denver, but I might also be driving to Boulder. And Denver's only part of that, or I'm driving from the airport to Boulder. And again, Denver's only a part of that. So how do you think about expanding your program or even working with other groups around the state or local areas to kind of make a smarter region? Yeah, Stacey, that is a really great question because no matter how smart or wise or intelligent Denver either is or will be, it is dependent and it is of key importance that we think about this regionally. Just as I was talking about how air quality doesn't know the boundaries People don't care whether they're in Denver or Boulder or all of the borders that we share with many cities. And so what we really are doing is creating and being a part of other partnerships as well. So two examples are the Colorado Smart Cities Alliance, which was formed by Denver South Economic Partnership. I think currently there's over 16 cities around the state that are involved in this alliance. And it's not just an alliance with cities, but it's also with key university and private partners. There was a recent announcement by Aero Electronics and in partnership with AECOM that they're working on kind of this regional testbed that we can all work together with. They also are really helping with that information sharing. And then another really important organization that I wanted to talk about was our Denver Regional Council of Governments. So that is our local municipal planning organization. They are involved in many efforts, but are really looking at this smart regional component. And then we're working with them. What ideas could we have where we're learning from other cities and things that they're doing in the region? And then maybe there's things that we're doing, for example, in the connected vehicle or open architecture space that they can learn from us. But where we're not saying this is the standard, this is information that we can all work on together. And then hopefully with those two organizations, we can really build on some regional and statewide protocols that we can use and really learn from each other, not just share that information, but grow with each other. Emily, this sounds great. So can you give me one project that you guys are maybe most proud of, or maybe it's just simply that is most complete at this time? So thanks for asking, Stacey. I am really excited about what we're doing around our living lab that we have on Federal Boulevard. So Federal Boulevard is a really important way for people to get to their homes and to businesses. It's in an area as well where we have some of our most disparate health outcomes even around air quality. And what we really realize is, is by focusing in on this area, we can really help understand what are the various things that we can do, either small steps or big steps, to improve the experience of living, working, and being around Federal Boulevard. So a specific use case we have is around emergency vehicle preemption. 
And our vehicles in Station 12, which is at 26th and Federal, there are two major fire trucks and then there, a chief has an SUV. And when there's an emergency, they use a system that omits a series of lights to do preemption. So that means for many of us, when a vehicle comes, we don't actually really know where it's coming from. We're using the sights and sounds to try to figure out where they are. And then the light often quickly changes for them. That's needed for two reasons. One is to clear traffic out of the way, and then it helps them get through to where they need to go. What we are really using is this new connected vehicle technology called DSRC, which is Dedicated Shortwave Communication, to have the fire trucks directly communicate with the signals, signal to signal. This is really important because they often turn off, whether it's based on traffic or other things, into other roads. And so we want to make sure that they're able to go signal by signal and get the right information that they need. A really key component is actually this two-way communication that this new technology will allow for. So what they'll be able to do is they'll actually be able to see the signal information, how many more seconds until it turns green, and other information directly back into their vehicles, which will help them make better decisions. In addition, by the signal-to-signal changes, what that'll do is that it will hopefully disrupt the network less. So that means sometimes when an emergency vehicle comes through, like a fire truck, it can take hours for people to get back to the normal pattern of the road. And so we think that there's going to be a faster turnaround time between when an emergency happens and when people can continue to go where they need to go in a manner that is efficient and also safe. Awesome. Anything to get me out of traffic jams. All right. Well, Emily, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Stacey. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.